Today we're going to talk about uh, the Feast of Sukkot. We talked about it a bit last week, and I want to begin with a little exercise. I want to see how bright you are. Now, uh, I'm going to read this paragraph. It's several sentences long. Um, You may feel like it's not connected, but perhaps it is. In fact, it is. And if you figure out what I'm talking about, just kind of keep it to yourself. And at the end of the paragraph, I'm going to ask you if anyone figured out what I'm talking about. All right, you you ready? You know what we're doing now? I'm going to read. You're going to try to figure out. If you get it, raise your hand. Okay, that's how we're going to do it. All right. A seashore is a better place than the street because you need lots of room. At first, it's better to run than to walk. You may have to try several times. It takes some skill, but it's easy to learn. Even young children can enjoy it. Birds seldom get too close. If there are no snags, it can be very peaceful. If it breaks loose, you won't likely get another chance. You're pathetic. Uh, Dustin, oh, good on you. Okay. So what do you think it is? Have you done it before? Cliff, are you just that smart? Oh, like all preachers, we heard somebody else say it, and then we use it. Good. Okay, so now I'll read it again, but the, the answer is a kite. A seashore is a better place than the street because you need lots of room. At first, it's better to run than to walk. You may have to try several times. It takes some skill, but it's easy to learn. Even young children can enjoy it. Birds seldom get too close. If there are no snags, it can be peaceful. If it breaks loose, you won't likely get another chance. So, context changes everything. We're going to look at a story today. In fact, it is something that we find in John chapter 8 and 7. If you want to find your way there, we're going to look at John 7 and 8. And there are some things that happen when Jesus goes to the Feast of Tabernacles. One of the tough things about teaching this is it's called by so many different names. The Festival of Shelters, the Feast of Tabernacles, um, we're going to call it Sukkot because that's what the Jews called it. But if you recall, there were uh, a few things about this that we need to remember. The first thing is, at the Feast of Sukkot, they built these uh, shelters. They were supposed to stay in these for a week. It was to remind them of when uh, when the Jews were freed from Egypt And they wandered in the wilderness and they built makeshift shelters for 40 years. Part of this ceremony also included the waving of, it's called the lulav. It is a palm branch, a myrtle branch, and a uh, willow branch. And you have this kind of in a grouping, these three branches, this branch bundle. And that's an etrog, it's sort of like a lemon. And you would wave that before God and it would remind them Interestingly enough, um, some scholars believe that the three branches had to deal with the, wander, the wilderness wandering, that the, um, that the palm was when they left, that's kind of the first terrain that they encountered after they left Egypt, they had palm trees, and then they wandered into the mountains, and that's where you'd find the myrtle trees, and then they wandered uh, to the Jordan River, and that's where, where you'd find the willow trees. And so it's sort of, again, symbolic of uh, it was helping them remind them of They're wandering through the wilderness. And then we noticed also last week that they offered 70 uh, oxen or bulls, and this was all part of Sukkot. They did 70 because 
Noah had 70 ancestors, and in the Hebrew mind, 70 is the number of how many nations there are. And so the Jews were offering sacrifices for all the nations. Now, the Feast of Shelters is a feast that Jesus attended. And so we sometimes read our New Testament like the Old Testament never happened. Jesus was Jewish, and he, uh, he did Jewishy things because he was Jewish. And one of the things that you do when you are Jewish, if you were an able-bodied male, three times a year you, you would uh, trek to Jerusalem because you had feasts that you were required to attend as an able-bodied Jewish man. And so Jesus would have done these. All right, let me set up John 7 by reminding you what happens in John 6. I know you all know this, but I'm just going to remind you. John 6, Jesus is teaching, and he says some very difficult things, like, uh, if you want to be my follower, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And people didn't understand that. It was very, <laughs> they didn't understand it was um, not literal, but, but figurative. And so, chapter 6 of John says that many of his disciples fell away. Even to the point where Jesus says to his guys, his 12, are you all also going to leave me? And that's when Peter says, where are we going to go? He says it just like that because he was southern. Uh, where are we going to go? So now we find ourselves chapter 7, John. But soon it was time for the Jewish festival of shelters. It was about to happen. So Jesus' brothers said to him, leave here, go to Judea, where your followers can see your miracles. You can't become famous if you hide like this. If you do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers didn't believe in him. So you have to read this with a bit of snark. Right? Uh, uh, Jesus' brother, well, leave, go to Judea. If you do all these miracles, everybody's talking about your miracles. You lost a whole bunch of followers just a little bit ago. You need to replenish your disciple base. So you need to go on during the Feast of Shelter. You need to make an entrance. You need to make an entrance. Now, there's this debate as to these brothers, who they are exactly. Some would say these are Mary's and Joseph's children, so that would make them younger. Uh, some argue that a younger brother wouldn't talk to Jesus like this, so they were older brothers, which means that Joseph, before he married Mary, might have had children. Certainly not uncommon for people to die at a young age in that era. In fact, I believe the uh, lifespan was somewhere in the 40s or early 50s, so they didn't live long. So Joseph might have had a wife and children before Mary. Certainly possible, and these are uh, older brothers. One of the reasons people believe this is because Mary, uh, when Jesus was on the cross... He says to John, his beloved disciple, hey, this is your mother, I need you to take care of mama, is what he says. Now, if Mary had other sons, it would make sense that when Jesus, when he died, the oldest next son would take over. And so, there's this debate, I'm not here to, to, to answer the question, because I don't know that I have the answer. But what I do know is it's somewhat of a cautionary tale, because Jesus' brothers, it says here, didn't believe in him. Whether they're older or younger really is of no consequence. They didn't believe. The cautionary tale is this. You can be really, really close to Jesus and not believe in him. You can know a lot about Jesus and not believe in Jesus. 
And so it's really important. Now, eventually, uh, several of Joseph's, uh, of Jesus' brothers do become followers. We know this. James, who writes the book, you know what book he wrote in the New Testament? It's not hard. James, right. Oh, good, man, you're on track. Okay, great. And then he had a brother named Jude. He wrote a book, too. You want to know what the name of that one is? Anybody? James. I uh, know Jude. It's Jude. So uh, he writes Jude. Jude becomes a follower. James becomes a follower. Mostly that's likely because of what they see after the resurrection. When Jesus is raised from the dead, I mean, they know he died and then he was back. And so perhaps that was what pushed them over. So the brothers somewhat antagonistically say, hey, Jesus, you need to go to the Feast of Shelters. Why would that be strategic? Because there are going to be lots of people there. And so what's really interesting is it's known that Jesus is a wanted man by the religious authorities. His brothers are kind of saying, hey, go to the Feast of Shelters. One, one has to wonder, do they know that if Jesus does go to the Feast of Shelters, that it's almost like he's walking into danger? Uh, it's, it's hard to think that a brother would do that, but then we see examples of that in Scripture at other times. Joseph's brothers walked him right into danger, so perhaps it was sibling rivalry or jealousy, but for some reason, these brothers want Jesus to make an entrance. Now, Jesus' response is really interesting. Um, Jesus replied, Now is not the right time for me to go. Uh, I, I'm not going to go right now, is what he's basically saying. Uh, you can go anytime. The world can't hate you, but it hates me because I accuse it of doing evil. You go on. <laughs> I love that. Y'all go on, is what Jesus said. Y'all go on. Um, I'm not going to this festival because my time has not yet come. After saying these things, Jesus remained in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. And it almost seems as if Jesus fibs a little bit here. But what we see is he's saying, I'm not going to go now. And I'm not going to go the way you say I ought to go. They want him to make this grand entrance. Now Jesus does make a grand entrance into Jerusalem. It happens, we know it as the triumphal entry. It happens later. But now is not the time. And what you're going to see in this whole, uh, this whole um, talk today is timing with God is everything. And his timing is impeccable. It, it is miraculous. It is amazing. And so sometimes we get all worked up because God's not doing what we think he ought to do in the timing we think he ought to do it. But God's timing is impeccable. So he, he kind of jabs back a little bit when he says, you can go anytime. He's basically saying, I'm going to be obedient to God's will. Y'all can do what you want to do. And then it says he goes not publicly, but incognito. He kind of, he wears, you know, the hat over his head, you know. Uh, I do that when I go to Walmart so people don't see me. I mean, you know, I don't want all the fans, you know, running up. Cliff, I bet you do that. You know, uh, have you ever seen me at Walmart? See how good I am at it? So you, you, you kind of you have to hide sometimes, and Jesus comes in. I, I read one fellow who said, this is really interesting, by the way. He said, uh, Jesus would have been so popular as a, uh, as a rabbi. Rabbis, part of Sukkot was you invited people into your, to your huts to share a meal. And so Jesus was sort of tamping down all of the, um, 
the invitations. He would have too many invitations and he didn't know how to select. And so perhaps that's why he came later. That, that's speculation, but it's, it's kind of interesting. But you can go anytime. It's really important to understand God's timing is great. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time. And you see these timing sorts of conversations, this timing language in Scripture all the time. And it's just there a lot. So, where do we see Jesus in this festival? You had the shelters, you had, um, you had the, the waving of the, the lulav and the etrog, you had this waving of these, uh, these items, you had the sacrifice of animals. And the Jews also devised a couple of other ceremonies. Now, these others were prescribed in Leviticus 23, but the Jewish priests developed a couple of other things. One was they had a prayer, this kind of special prayer for rain. Now, we live in an area where it rains, and so you kind of don't understand that we, we don't fully get the uh, idea of this. But I've lived in New Mexico. We lived in Artesia, New Mexico, and the a- uh, average annual rainfall is 13 inches a year. And so it doesn't rain very much. And so for there to be water enough for crops, rain was wildly important. And so, here you are, you've just come through the dry season. You're right now harvesting the last crops. These are the crops from the trees. Uh, uh, It would be like dates, and it would be things like pomegranates and olives. And so they're just at the conclusion of that final harvest And it's dry, it's been dry, and so for things to replenish for next year, they need rain to start very soon. Now, in uh, in Israel, the rain does come in the fall, and it's kind of part of what what they're looking for. But the the priests developed a little ceremony. It's called... um, uh, I don't remember what it's called, but they would take a golden pitcher... And they would go down to this spring. It's called the, the Fountain of Siloam. You've heard of it because uh, it's kind of in Jerusalem and not very far from the temple. And the Jews, in their minds, they understood water in different ways. There's three, kind of, three kinds of water. There's water you collect in a cistern. I don't know if you all know about these, but my aunt had a cistern behind her house, and all the rainwater would go into a catchment uh, tank, and uh, I know some of you have some of those that water your gardens, and so you, they had this catchment tank, and that's a cistern, and that's not living water because the water goes there and it rests. And then sometimes you get water from a well. You see that in Scripture a lot. And the well water, again, it's not, it is kind of running, but it's not running water. But they talk about living water as coming from a spring. Now, uh, I've watched enough nature survival shows that I know this. Water uh, downstream <laughs> is usually infected. And you're not supposed to drink, they call that wild water. You're not supposed to drink wild water because you, um, you can get disease and that sort of thing. But when we were in New Mexico once, we hiked and um, there, we, we came upon a spring. I mean, it was coming right out of the rocks. And I, mean, I drank that because it's like, well, when, how many times in, the, in your life are you ever going to get a chance to do that? Miriam, much smarter than me, didn't do that. And so uh, I survived, but it's not because of wisdom. It was just something I wanted to do. So the pool of Siloam is there's this spring. And so get get in your mind what's going on here. 
the priest, dressed in his priestly garb, would get a golden pitcher, and he would take it down to the pool of Siloam. Oh, I have a picture of living water, by the way. Uh, He would go, and he would take the pitcher, and he would dip it in the pool of Siloam. Now, there was this kind of parade. He would go down, and there would be people behind him playing flutes and clapping and cymbals, and it was, they, they would be chanting they chanted what's called the Hallel. This is uh, Psalm 113 through 118. And, and uh, I thought, oh, that, that's probably not that much. I looked at it. It's a lot of stuff there. In fact, let me show you a little bit of it. This is the kind of thing they would be chanting as the priest went down to Siloam. May the Lord richly bless you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens belong to the Lord, uh, but he has given the earth. He has not given uh, the earth uh, to all humanity. Uh, but he is, I'm sorry, the heavens belong to the Lord, but he has given uh, the earth to all humanity. The dead cannot sing praise to the Lord, for they have gone into the silence of the grave. But you can praise the Lord both now and forever. Praise the Lord. And they would be saying these things. This is just a small portion of the halal. And they would go down and he would dip this water, uh, this pitcher in the water, and then he would make his way back up to the temple. Now there's a gate, a certain gate he would walk through. It's called the water gate for this very reason. And he would go to the altar after they had offered the sacrifices. And he would circle the altar one time. Again, while everybody's chanting, while everybody is waving their palm branches and their lulav and their etrog, they're waving these things and they're chanting and it's this big commotion. And he would go and he would pour the water on the altar. For six days he does this, this uh, parade down to the pool of Siloam. And then on the seventh day, it was even more intense. He would go down and he would get the picture, same kind of process. The crowds were with him. They would uh, parade down with him and then back up to the temple, through the temple gate. There would be three blasts of the uh, shofar horn, these long blasts, and it was was basically a call to prayer. And they would be saying, now this is really interesting. Last day, the priests would circle the altar seven times, which was reminiscent of uh, the Battle of Jericho. And then he would pour uh, this... Uh, it's an offering it's a drink offering is what it's called they he would pour this water on the altar and he was basically saying god we need your help we we're gonna we're praying we we know we are thankful for what you've done but we need you to bless us in the future now really interesting part of the halal is this think about this in relationship to jesus the stone that the builder rejected so they're saying this while the water's being poured The stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And then they would say this over and over. Please, Lord, please save us. Please, Lord, please give us success. Bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And it is this dramatic moment. And there are tens upon tens of thousands of people in the temple when this is going on. Now, I don't know the precise moment Jesus says this next thing that we're going to see, but it makes sense to me that on this last day, that as they pour out the drink offering, 
Look at what Jesus, again, I can't guarantee you it happened just then, but it was during the Feast of Shelters, and it makes sense to me that it's likely that Jesus said these words while that water was being poured. On the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and he shouted to the crowd, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from your hearts. And now all of a sudden, what he said is different. I mean, have you ever thought of it in the context of, oh, they're having this ceremony about water, and Jesus says at the top of his voice, if you're thirsty, come to me. See, water in a place where there's very little water is so precious it symbolizes satisfaction and sustenance and Jesus uses these three verbs here anyone who is thirsty that that's what it takes anyone who is thirsty anyone who is thirsty it's this sort of universal invitation if you are thirsty if you're craving if your soul is parched then that's when you know you need something. We, we understand there's a need. He says, hey, if you thirst. The second verb is come. Anyone who thir- thirsts may come. We, we see this all the time. You realize a need and you move toward that need. You realize a need for gas and you go to the gas station and you pray that there's gas. I mean, this last week's kind of been crazy. Uh, you realize a need for hunger, you have hunger, you realize a need for food, and you go uh, get something out of the kitchen, or you go to a restaurant. You feel a need for fellowship, people meet that need in different ways. Some people come to church, some people go to bars, but there's a need. We feel the need, and we quench the need. You feel a need for adventure, you try to go into Costco without a mask on. I mean, you, uh, you, you feel the need for uh, uh, sleep and you turn on NASCAR. I mean, uh, we, we feel needs and we feel the needs. And Jesus is saying, listen, if you thirst, you come. Then the third verb is, and you drink. And he, again, anyone who believes... Not anyone, remember, let's go back to Jesus' brothers. Not anyone who just knows me or knows about me. Anyone who believes can drink. It's for everybody. It's an open invitation. And I think what's really interesting is he uses the language of living water. We're, we're not, when we receive Jesus, we're not to be a cistern or a well. We're to be living water. God blesses us so that we can bless others. God pours into us so we can pour into others. We're not, we're not called to just know. We're called to do. And it only requires one thing. All you have to do is thirst. It doesn't say you have to get good enough or be good enough or, or, or offer penance It doesn't say you have to be religious or benevolent. It doesn't say that you have to be a basically good person. Jesus' invitation is to anyone and everyone who thirsts. The requirement is a recognition that you have a need. That's all there is to it. Anyone who thirsts. And so in this magnificent moment... 
the chanting stops. The water is poured on the altar on the seventh day. The crowd is hushed. Jesus proclaims in a loud voice. He says, anyone who thirsts may come to me. And the notion is he's in the temple and he yells to the crowd, anyone who thirsts. Super interesting. We see Jesus in this ceremony, this ceremony for rain. They did something else during the Feast of Sukkot. They lit lots of candles. In the temple, there are different courts. It's sort of divided into different sections. The outer section is the court of the Gentiles. That's where anybody could come and worship the one true God. That's where Jesus drove out the money lenders and those merchants who were trading animals because he saw that as being illegitimate for any part of the temple, especially for the Gentiles who were trying to get in to the kingdom. Then the next most inner court is the court of women, and then the next court is the court of Jews, and then, the, uh, then there's the Holy of Holies, and so there's kind of divided. And in the court of women, kind of the sort of the middle uh, courtyard, they lit candles and these candelabras and lots of lights, lots and lots of lights. So at night, again, this is probably October, uh, September, uh, sort of uh, gets dark a little earlier, they light these candles all in the court of women and there are four particularly large candelabras with four basins each four cups each four times four these big cups uh, i read everywhere from they were 75 feet tall to 150 feet tall i mean i can't imagine them being 150 feet tall so let's go with 75 can you imagine how tall that is and so they would have i, th- I thought this was interesting they would have young priests who climbed the ladder because the old priests are like, I'm not doing that. And the young priests would climb the ladder and they would take buckets basically of oil to put in, olive oil to put in these, uh, these bases, these, these buckets up on top. And they were going to light these, these big candelabras, these big menorah. And what's really interesting, I, I find it comical, honestly. The wicks, you're never going to, I'm going to ask you this question. Would anybody like to know... <laughs> Um, what the wicks were for those four big receptacles. They were the discarded holy underwear of the high priest. I ain't even lying. I mean, that's the most crazy thing you've ever heard. Uh, They used used droves for wicks uh, is what they did. And these young priests, because old priests aren't going to climb 75 feet, uh, I'm not going to climb 7 or 5 feet. So uh, 75 feet, they would light these. And the temple sits on a mound. And so the temple is high and lifted up as far as Jerusalem goes. And the light shines bright. And the historians say that it was like a diamond in the middle of the desert when these lights were uh, alighted during Sukkot. And they would light these, and one historian said while they would light them, they would say, I will be a light to all nations. They would be chanting these things. Again, these are people who are accustomed to these sorts of ceremonies. And again, I can't say for sure this is how it went down, But in that context, think about Jesus 
who says this, I'm the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. And here you have an audience of people who are, listen, uh, the, the lighting of the light was to, be remi- was to remind them of when God led them through the wilderness. And you'll recall that story. He led them with a, a cloud of fire by night and a, a, a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. And so they were remembering that God leads people with light. And Jesus is like, I'm the light. This isn't something you look at, it's something... You follow. It's not to be admired, it's to be followed. Isn't that interesting? Some people believe that Jesus was born during Sukkot. I'm going to make an argument for it. I'm not sure I buy it completely, but it's really interesting. So let me see if I can help you. Now, I know we celebrate Christmas on December 25th, and I'm not telling you to give that up. In fact, this coming December 25th, the Vest family will be celebrating Christmas. My wife will do her uh, Advent calendar for the girls, and we'll do it just like we've always done it. But there, there, is, there are uh, scholars who believe that Jesus was likely born on Sukkot. Well, I'll show you why. Maybe, I'll, maybe I can convince you. Shepherds would be keeping their flocks in the field, but not in December. Now, uh, September, October, yes, it's still warm enough for them to be out in the fields, but the shepherds would have long since gone in because it's too cold to keep your sheep out in the field at night in December. Something else, John the Baptist's birth. We know because we read Scripture that John was about six months older than Jesus, that uh, when... um, when, uh, Elizabeth became pregnant. Uh, six months later, Mary visited, and we, we know that story from Scripture. And then the speculation is, okay, well, when was John conceived? It's really interesting. So the angel says to his dad, Zechariah, and now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you didn't believe my words. Again, belief is really interesting. Timing and belief are kind of our theme words for the day. You have to believe in God's timing. It's really interesting, which will come true at their appointed time. The feasts were called appointed times. There were three of them that you had to go to. There were seven of them that you celebrated, either in Jerusalem or apart. John the Baptist came in the role of Elijah. It says in Scripture that he was the one like Elijah. And Passover, which is six months before um, Sukkot, in a Seder meal, even today, they set a plate for Elijah. And so if Elijah was to come, and if John is a type of Elijah, then it kind of makes sense. That he was born during Passover... Jesus was born during Sukkot. Makes sense. The census, we know that the the, uh, Jesus family was in Bethlehem, which is really, really near, 4.5 miles away from Jerusalem, so it would make sense that they were close. Um, Roman leaders, you know, government doesn't always do the most logical things. I don't know if you've noticed that. Anybody ever noticed that? But sometimes they don't do the most logical things. One of the things the Romans did when they were dealing with the Jews was they would... um, require these censuses, um, that's not probably my word, sensi, uh, they would uh, require these sorts of things when the, Jews, the Jewish men were already going to be in Jerusalem. And so it would make sense that Jesus and his family, were already, his family was already going to be 
in that area. It also would make sense that they couldn't find any place to stay, not because of the census, but because of Sukkot. They were having this big feast, and uh, they kind of ran out of room, and it would make sense because many, many, many people came to that area during that time. The eighth day is really interesting. Now, you remember Sukkot was seven days long, but then they had kind of a bonus day. Well, uh, Jewish boys were born and eight days later are circumcised. In fact, that's for any child that's circumcised, any boy that's circumcised is circumcised on the eighth day. Um, It would make sense then that if this theory is correct, that Jesus was born, he would likely have been born on the first day of Sukkot, that is a Sabbath, a special holy day to God, and that he would be circumcised on the eighth day, also a very special holy day to God. Let me give you one more. I may not have convinced you, that's okay. This one sort of speaks to me. I like all these, but this one is probably my favorite. John, writing about Jesus' birth, says, and the Word, which was a euphemism for God, and the Word was, uh, became flesh and made, his, and made His dwelling or dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the fathers, full of grace and truth. The Orthodox Jewish Bible puts it this way, He made His sukkah among us, and we glazed upon His Shekinah, His glory. It's the same Shekinah that led the Israelites through the wilderness. Super interesting. Now, again, I don't know if it makes any difference at all. It's kind of speculative, yes. But with God, timing is everything. The December 25th date was kind of, it came about in the 4th century. The Catholic Church sort of determined that was the date that they were going to use, and that's the date we've been using. Again, there's no problem with that because we, we who want to celebrate Jesus' birth should. But God isn't random. He does things in perfect timing. He doesn't randomly tell the sun when to rise and when to set. He just doesn't. He doesn't randomly tell the seasons, except for this year, uh, when, uh, when to change. You know, it's like, are we even in spring? Uh, so God is meticulous in his timing. Think about this. At, at some point, God has determined there's going to be a time when Jesus returns. And so, let's look at this last thing. Maybe Jesus is in Sukkot in his return. Each feast was timed perfectly. Now, what I like about the... Let's go back to the water just for a second. I like that the the Jews were... They were um, in the moments, but they were also looking ahead. We, We have kind of this foolish notion around America that you need to live in the moment. Well, okay, but you still have to look ahead I can't live in the moment and buy something I can't afford. That doesn't make any sense. I can. I learned a long time ago, I can borrow a whole lot more money than I can pay back. It's just kind of funny that way. So I can live in the moment and over-borrow, but that doesn't make it smart. I can live in the moment and go too far sexually with someone, but then I, I don't consider the emotional, the spiritual, the physical ramifications of that. I can live in the moment. It just doesn't, doesn't make sense. It's not logical. It's not smart. I can live in the moment and go to Sonic and buy a peanut butter caramel pie malt with 2,000, let me see how many calories it says, 2,170 calories. I can do that 
And I might. Doesn't make it smart. We can live in the moment, but not consider the future. What I love about these, these Jewish, this particular festival, is they were living in the moment. Thank you, God, for deliverance. Thank you, God, for uh, provision. But God, we also need more rain. Because there's another year coming. We enjoy the moment. We enjoy it. This is a great time. Be present where you are. How many of us see people who are uh, looking at their phone while they're with people? Be in the moment with people. Be with them while you're with them. But this timing, Jesus was literally born. Uh, born. Jesus was literally crucified on Passover. Jesus was literally dead during the Feast of Weeks. Jesus was, or uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He was literally resurrected on the Feast of First Fruits. He literally gave the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. These fall feasts seem to be future. Remember the trumpets, that's sort of a wake-up call. Hey, the Feast of Trumpets, hey, that's a wake-up call. And then the Day of Atonement, that's the Day of Judgment. Sukkot points to this future, this party. One of the rabbis, I quoted this last week, said, if you'd never seen Sukkot, you don't know what joy even is. These people, they prayed and praised and thanked and sang and played instruments and danced. And they would wave these lulavs until the leaves fell off, basically saying to God, unless you restore our land, this is what it's going to look like. Our plants will have no leaves. And there was this whole... This whole event of just saying, God, we we need you. God, save us. God, protect us. God, take care of us. We appreciate what you did, and we're looking to the future. Sukkot is this celebration of the promised land that had been given, and one that is also future. Look at the language in Revelation. The Lamb will lead them to the springs of life-giving water. I saw no temple in the city for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are in the temple. They don't even need a temple. And there will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun, for the Lord God will shine on them. And basically they were saying, take the greatest feast that we have, the most celebratory time that we have, the Feast of Shelters, That is what heaven is going to be like. Jesus is there, living water. He lights it up. We get to be with Him forever. It's about timing. It's about belief. Again, Jesus says, anyone who believes in Me, come and drink. Isn't that great? I just love that. I love, I love the picture of Jesus in this particular feast. Father, thank You. Thank You for showing us new and different things today. A lot of this I didn't know, Lord. Thank You for showing me. I appreciate the fact that You've given it to me and then I had a chance to share it today with my friends. And Lord, help us not just know You, but believe in You. And help us not just to trust our timing, but believe in Your timing because You do things perfectly. We love you. We pray that you would 
um, work in our spirits and our hearts. And Lord, help us to ingest this, process this, help us to learn from it today and grow from it today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.